Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you that we get to look at the wonderful stories of Ruth and Mary today. It's, it's kind of a lot to weave these two things together, and yet, through the power of the gospel, you have woven together far more disparate things. So speak into each of our hearts. Speak through me in these next moments. May your word come alive to the people here and the people online. And may your kingdom come and may your glory come. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So if I asked you to open up your calendar and take a look at your appointments and your things that you have coming up for the next week or two, I guarantee you there would probably be one thing on your calendar where if I were to ask you, you would probably say, yeah, I'm not looking forward to that. I'm not. And, you know, that kind of is unique to maybe this time of year. There's an office Christmas party that you're not looking forward to because, you know, you work with someone that's just kind of awkward or uncomfortable or you have a difficult relationship with your boss. Maybe there's a family dinner coming up where you're going to see somebody that you're like, I know we're family, but do we have to be? Like, really? Is there a way around this? Uh, Fear not, Self Magazine has you covered. There was an article in Self Magazine uh, back in September that had this headline, three things to do if you really, all caps really, want to cancel plans but feel guilty. Thank you, Self Magazine. I'm so grateful that you've decided to step into this. Uh, As is typical of Self Magazine articles, the headline is not misleading. This is what the article actually talks about. There's an unnamed therapist who is... uh, offered as an expert in this conversation, therapist offers this idea. Find a solution that will meet as many of your needs as possible. Your needs. So if you're going to bail on that dinner, if you're not going to go to your office Christmas party, all you need to think about is your needs. Don't worry about the needs of the people that you're bailing on. Don't worry about the fact that if you don't show up for dinner, there's not going to be a salad because you signed up to bring a salad. Don't think about that. Think about your needs as much as possible. The New York Times uh, back on November 12th had a fabulous article uh, about this culture that we live in where what your emotions tell you is paramount. Like we have, you know, these songs and these messages like follow your heart, follow your arrow wherever it points, right? Those are sort of nice, good ideas, but there's a shadow side to that. Uh, The writer of this article in the Times said this, the exhortation to take care of ourselves, to protect our mental well-being at any cost, has become a mantra for a newly dominant ideology. According to this ideology, the pursuit of private happiness has increasingly become culturally celebrated as the ultimate goal. Conversely, obligations, including obligations to imperfect and often downright difficult people, tell me who you're picturing, are often framed as mere unpleasant circumstance, inimical to the solitary pursuit of our best life. T-shirts that say, I'm living my best life, you're probably not living that with people that you don't enjoy. Feelings have become the authoritative guide to what we ought to do at the expense of our communal obligations. Here's the line I don't want you to miss. Our emotions have become the moral ground for our actions. Ew. True? Not true? I think it's more true than we would like to admit. And how's that working out for us? If I don't feel like having a difficult conversation with my spouse, are my emotions right? Should I just follow that wherever it points? If I don't 
you know, have a, a real strong commitment to this project at work or to, you know, doing something intentional with one of my children, if I don't feel up to it, therefore I should bail on this, right? This is this uh, philosophical school of uh, solipsism, right? Like, only what I can conceive with my mind is worth acting upon. Whatever other people might put on me, that's not on me. That's not working out well, guys. This isn't working out well in marriages. This isn't working out well in relationships, in business, in the community. If I don't feel like showing up here on Sunday for you guys, maybe I just won't. I don't think that would work out well for you or for me. I don't want that for us. There is a different way. There is a different way. And this is the way of Mary, and this is the way of Ruth, and this is the way of the courageous Savior who said, I'm going to go to the cross for a whole bunch of people, and I will not feel great while I go do this. I want to be cautious as we step into uh, this morning's sermon. I'm not (laughs) anti-feelings. Like, I'm an Enneagram 5, but I like my feelings. Like, I enjoy, like, being able to feel things. Your feelings are important, and they're part of who you are. Your emotions are a gift from God. But I just want to say, this is how I talk about emotions with my children, all of whom are very emotional people. I wonder where they learned that from. Picture yourself in a car, okay? And you're behind the wheel of the car. Your emotions are in the car with you. Sometimes they're in the back seat. Sometimes, if you're really feeling something, they're in the passenger seat next to you. But your feelings, your emotions, they don't get to drive the car. They stay in the car with you, but they're not in charge. They are not behind the wheel. This is how we are kind of coaching our kids to navigate this. So hear me when I say, your feelings are part of who you are and they're important, but they cannot be the basis through which we make every single decision, especially morally morally, uh, important decisions in our lives. We see two women in today's text, and I'm not just talking about emotions because women are the subject of today's sermon. No, no, no. This is true for all people. We see two people who are encountering some seriously difficult emotional circumstances, but they don't choose to let their emotions dictate the outcome. They take them into consideration. They're there. Remember, they're in the car with them, but they're not driving the car. What's driving the car is the courage that God gives to both of these women, the calling he gives to them to follow his ways. And I want to offer to us this idea that there is something that God is calling you to do, some part of your life, your work, your family, your parenting, your involvement in your community, that he is saying to you, I have some courageous things for you to do. Would you hear me? Would you act upon what I want to offer to you? So today's outline is going to be real simple. We're going to talk about Ruth, and then we're going to talk about her... her, uh, descendant by marriage, Mary, and then we're going to talk about courage for Advent. Ruth, and then Mary, and then courage. Now, let's talk about Ruth. Ruth is not a typical subject when we talk about Advent. We're talking about Ruth because we're talking about the genealogy of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, a whole bunch of different people get mentioned that are kind of outside the box. Last week we talked about Rahab, who is very much an outsider. We continue that trend this week talking about Ruth. Let's set the context for a little bit. Last week's sermon about Rahab, that occurred right as the people of Israel were leaving the Exodus. They're settling into the promised land. This occurs later than that. We're not sure how much later, but it happens during the time of the judges. Now, the time of the judges is when the people of Israel are settling into the promised land, and they are doing so oftentimes through very bloody and violent means. 
as is often the case, when you bring blood and violence into a created new nation with you, that nation tends to be kind of bloody and violent. So the time of the judges, unlike what the name would suggest, was not a time where there was a lot of attention to the law or there was perfect order or rule. It was actually the opposite. It was kind of Israel's time in the Wild West, you know, where if you had a weapon or you had the means, you could just kind of live like you wanted to live. Not a very good way to live, I would say. Enter into this the story of a woman named Naomi. Now, Naomi is uh, a woman who is from the people of Israel, and she is married to a man, and there's a famine in the land of Israel, so they move to Moab, not Moab, Utah, Moab where modern-day Jordan is. They are foreigners in Moab. When they arrive in Moab, they have two daughters, Naomi and, or Ruth and Orpha, and these two daughters get married to Moabite men. And after a period of time, Naomi's husband passes away. And so their tight-knit family unit of six people goes down to five. They're in a foreign country, so they don't have other family around them to support them necessarily. And in this time, in a patriarchal society, losing one of the key male figures in the family was really difficult. It sets you back in a whole bunch of ways. But they continue on in their life in Moab, and then after ten years of living as a family of five, so Naomi, the mom, and then the two daughters and their two husbands, both of the husbands pass away. We don't know how, but it is a tragedy, and it binds them together through grief. If you've been through a season of grief in your family, you understand this. You're closer to the people that you go through grief with, but it's not the kind of closeness that you would choose. It's just what happens to you. Grief unites them together as a family. Now, think about this. Kind of put yourself there emotionally. Picture all the relationships that you have had that have lasted 10 plus years. A friend that you grew up with. Maybe your spouse. Maybe you're hitting the 10-year mark or you're past that. Maybe you've lived in the same home for 10 years and you've got these great neighbors. Think about all the time that you've invested in those people. Meals together. Holidays. Celebrations. And now imagine that after 10 years, it's gone. They're gone. They're not there anymore. You don't get to keep meeting with them. You don't get to hear their voice anymore. It's a tremendous loss for this family. It unites them together, but it's painful. Naomi, the mother, goes so far as to say that the suffering that she's experiencing, this is in Ruth chapter 1, it makes her feel like God is targeting her, that God is just punishing her. And if you've ever felt that way, uh, you're in good company. A lot of people in the Bible have felt that way. Naomi feels this way. Job felt this way. There, There is a sense, because of our limited ability to comprehend as human beings what God is doing, that the persecution and the pain that we feel sometimes, it just feels like God's picking on us. And again, if you have felt that way, you are not alone. So Naomi tells her two daughters-in-law, you guys need to go start over. If you stay with me because God's punishing me, you're just going to keep getting hurt and hurt and hurt. And so Orpha, one of the daughters, says, okay, I'll take you at your word. I'm out of here. But Ruth has a different story. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That last statement is remarkable. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite. She's not part of the tribe of Israel. She doesn't know the God that uh, 
Naomi worships, but she's seen Naomi's faithfulness. There's something intriguing to her about this. She sees something valuable in what Naomi has done. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. This is a lifetime commitment. This young woman who has invested 10 years of her life already in this family is saying, I'm not going anywhere. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. What an incredible statement of courage. And what a cost to her to say, you know what? My elderly mother-in-law who feels persecuted by God, she needs me. I'm staying. That's powerful. This is a, uh, a relief engraving, so a carving entitled Ruth and Naomi on the Road to Bethlehem. It's from an artist named Barry Moser. So Ruth is at the bottom, and her eyes are set forward. So she makes this promise to Naomi, who's standing above her, and they go to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Well, that's where their family was from. That's where they might be able to go back. Maybe the famine's over. Maybe they can find a fresh start there. Much like Jesus, their ancestor would do when he set his eyes toward Jerusalem, where he knew where he needed to go. Naomi knows where she needs to go. Look at the courage on her face. And above her, or excuse me, Ruth is looking forward with courage. Naomi, above her, her figure is, is slight compared to Ruth's. She's almost you know, a lesser physical presence. Her face is darkened, but you can tell from where her hand is and just the expression on the bits of her face that we can see. She's worried. This is an emotional picture. But I share this with you guys because this is not a picture of watching our emotions win. This is the decision these two women make out of faithfulness and saying, we got to go back. we got to go back. This is where God's going to meet us, and he does. And unlike many of the stories in the Bible sometimes, Ruth does have a happy ending. They go back to Bethlehem. She meets a man named Boaz. He's kind to her. They get married. They continue their life. And out of Ruth and Boaz's union comes the house and the line of King David. And out of that line comes the Savior. A picture of courage. Now, let's talk about a different picture of courage with Mary. I want you to kind of hold what we've just said about Ruth, like hold it in your heart for a little bit, and we'll talk about Mary, and then we'll bring the two together. Fast forward about 1,500-ish years. Now we are in the time of the Roman occupation of the ancient Near East of the Holy Land. And we meet this young gal at the beginning of Luke's Gospel named Mary. This is a painting called The Annunciation. It's from an African-American painter named Henry Oswa Tanner. It's from 1898. Uh, interesting, Tanner was the first African-American painter to have his artwork featured in the great galleries of Paris, France. No other black painter had ever been permitted to show their stuff in Paris. But as you can tell, this is a pretty remarkable painting. Over on the right is Mary... <clears throat> Um, If you could see her face in greater detail, she's quite young, and that's accurate to how the scriptures present her. She's not an old woman. She's a young woman. Her setting is modest. She's on her bed. The bed clothes, the sheets are kind of scattered around her. It's almost like she's blending into this background. Her posture is is receptive. She's humble. She's just kind of taking in what's happening in front of her. And I love this because this contrasts so sharply with other uh, artwork depicting the Annunciation. That's what the the historical term is for this kind of dialogue between uh, the angel Gabriel and Mary. 
most romantic artists, even the Impressionists, they depict the angel Gabriel as almost being an equal to Mary. And some of this is, you know, the Catholic influence in the world of art, like high regard for Mary, high regard for angels. But I love this depiction because look as hard as you want. There's no face on the angel. He's, he's a, a, a bolt of lightning, a beam of light. An otherworldly being depicted in an otherworldly manner. I like this. I, I can relate to this a little bit better than some of the other stuff that's out there. So Mary has this dialogue with an angel. <laughs> what in the world? If you've had a dialogue with an angel, come talk to me. I don't, I, shh, that would fry all the circuits in my brain. And here's this unlikely young woman, unmarried, young, don't know really anything about her family background. We do know that she's marrying into the house and line of David, her betrothed, Joseph. He is from Ruth's ancestry. That's his family tree. And we know this. She's called by God. This is what the angel says to her. You have a job to do, Mary. You have something remarkable happening. And in verse 29 of the text today, I just want to remind us of this real briefly. Mary hears these words from the angel Gabriel, and this is how it says she responds emotionally. Confused and disturbed. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Confused and disturbed. When I get confused and disturbed, you know what I do? I, I, I back up. I, I need a minute. I know enough about myself now at this stage in my life to go like, okay, hold on. I need to take a breath and just sit with this for a sec. Maybe Mary needed that in the moment, but she stays present to this. She holds her emotions in one hand, and she, hold this, she holds this powerful dialogue between herself and the angel and the other. She doesn't let her confusion derail what God is trying to say to her. And then there are these words of courage that I think are just majestic. The angel offers her this word of courage, for the word of God will never fail. Mary, I know this seems absolutely crazy. I know there's no likelihood whatsoever of this succeeding. This is not what you expected when you woke up on Tuesday, but here it is. And the reason this is going to come together is not because of me and not because of you and not because of your emotions. It is because the word of God, what God says God will do, will happen. It will happen. And Mary's response drafts off that courage, builds upon that courage, takes the architecture of that courage and makes a building out of it. And Mary responded, say it with me, I am the Lord's servant. Say it again. I am the Lord's servant. Who responds to an angel like that? Who responds to a fantastic otherworldly situation like that? Who has the wherewithal to say in the moment, I don't know what's happening here, but my response is I'm in. I want to do this. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't have a plan. I couldn't tell you what the five-year ROI is going to be, but I can tell you that I'm in. That's incredible. That courage reminds me a whole lot of the courage of Ruth. I don't know how this is going to work out, Naomi. We're going to go back to Bethlehem. We're going to see what we can find. But I'm in. It's not going to feel great. It'll be hard, but I'm in. I don't need an article about how to excuse myself from this situation. I'm here. Mary says the same thing. How did they get there? 
How do they get there? How do we get to this place of courage? Maybe you can think right now of a situation coming up where you're just going to need some courage. A conversation you need to have with someone in your family. A talk you need to have with your boss before everybody goes away for the holidays. A word you need to share with someone who's fighting addiction or not fighting an addiction and you want to talk to them about it. The holidays are not just these wonderful merry times. These are times when we have real, honest, hard conversations if we would just have them. How do you get so much courage like Ruth or like Mary? I think it begins with how do you see yourself? How do you picture yourself in the world? Ruth sees herself as inherently bonded to and united with her mother-in-law. Now, there are circumstances where that could be super-duper unhealthy, but in this case, it's a good thing. She sees the suffering that her mother-in-law is going to keep living with, and she goes, nah, that's not going to happen. I am not going to let my mother-in-law think over and over again, God's punishing me, God's punishing me, God's punishing me, because that's going to kill her. So I'm going to stay with her. She sees herself as, as part of who Naomi is and part of who their family is. You don't just walk away from 10 years of relationship. She's in. Similarly, Mary, when she says, I am the Lord's servant, this is, she's saying, this is not about me. This is not about all the plans that I had for my life or my dreams for my wedding or anything like that. There is a greater power fueling the purpose of my life now. This is what the gospel brings. The gospel brings the security to say, look, I know it sounds crazy, but I, I think the Lord really wants me to go do this. And you discern with your community. You talk about it with your spouse and with your small group. You find a way to aim that courage properly. And that, I believe, is one of the callings of the church right now. So how do we do this? Just two brief suggestions. First suggestion is this. Interrogate your emotions. Interrogate your emotions. What do I mean by that? Remember the analogy I used earlier of driving the car? If you feel like you're in a situation where your emotions are trying to take the wheel and start driving, what's happening there? When is the circumstance that you can remember where it just felt like your emotions are kind of running away with you? I had a moment this week, uh, this past Tuesday, that was just very discouraging to me. Tuesday is one of my favorite days of the week. It's my study day. I get to come and sit with the text, and I pray for you guys, and I pray for the message, and all this kind of thing. And when I got here to work this Tuesday, I went up to my study like I normally do, and this is what happened. No kidding. I sat down with all my happy things, my Bible and my legal pads and my freshly sharpened pencils, and I'm all ready to go, and this is what happened. I just could not make sense of what I was studying. It was like my brain was kind of misfiring and a little gooey, kind of maple syrupy a little bit. Maybe some of you don't operate like that, but that happens to me sometimes. My brain can feel like maple syrup. There you go. It was discouraging because it's something that I love to do. It's something I feel called to do. I believe God has gifted me to do, and I could not make heads or tails of it. So my dog comes with me on Tuesdays, so we took a walk, and I talked to her about what I was going through. She didn't have a whole lot to share with me, which is fine. She's not a big talker, but, you know, it's all right. If you ever see me walking the neighborhood fervently talking to my dog, you'll know what's going on. You're like, okay, he'll be all right. He'll get through this. But if I had let my emotions drive the car in that moment, you know what I would have done? I would have just said, whatever. I'm going I'm to go home. This, this, this will be for another day. And I could have done that, sure. 
What I really needed to do was just step back for a minute and remind myself of who God is. Not so much of what my frustrations were in the moment, but remind myself, this is the God who touched the lives of Ruth and Naomi, and he has touched my life, and he has touched your life. And he will be faithful through this. I don't have to muster up all the courage and do all the things to make this work. I don't have to read the right commentary or study the right piece of the Bible. I just need to ask the Lord for help. And that's where my courage is going to come from today. That and going to get myself a cup of coffee, which apparently I needed. If we let our emotions drive the car, sometimes we're going to drive off a cliff. When's the last time you felt like your emotions were kind of starting to drive you off a cliff? Would you interrogate them? Would you ask yourself, why am I reacting this way? Why do I feel so under the weather or why do I feel so discouraged right now? In my moment this past Tuesday, it's because I like to see myself as a capable person and my capability, my perception of my capability was getting torn down. Maybe it's something else for you. Maybe you don't need to look like you're capable. Maybe you need to look like you're presentable and attractive and beautiful. Maybe you need to think of yourself as clever and able to say things that really bring things together. Interrogating your emotions will help you understand what's happening under the surface. And it will give the gospel a greater entry point into your life. When you interrogate your emotions, you're not just looking for an excuse to get away from whatever you're feeling. You're just asking the question, like, why am I feeling this way? That's the first encouragement. The second encouragement is something I ripped off from a podcast. We can do hard things. We can do hard things. You can do hard things. When your emotions spike, when you don't want to have that conversation, when you get close to that appointment on your calendar, that you're kind of wishing you had that article with the tips on how to bail out of it, you can do it. You can do it. You can have the hard conversation. You can talk to your spouse about something difficult. And here's the way to do it. It's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing. No, 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 no. It's asking the Lord, Lord, what would you have me do here? It's having a conversation with a friend that you trust, saying, hey, look, I'm kind of feeling a little worked up about this conversation. I don't really know why. Can you help me make sense of this? Maybe you can have that conversation with your spouse or with a sibling or with someone that you really love and trust that can kind of give you that wisdom to get through it. You can do hard things, church. If you feel like you're too busy, you're too stressed to really sit with your emotions, that's a lame excuse. Create some space. Walk away from your desk. Take your dog on a walk. Do something that creates that space for you so that you get away from the oppressive, stressing environment that we live in of joyless urgency, and you get an opportunity to really listen to what God is saying to you. Finally, if you are someone uh, who's experienced grief in your life and grief at a deep level, I want to offer just a very practical encouragement. Uh, You are not alone. So the holiday season, like I said, can be a joyous and joyful time, and it should be, but it can also be a time where we experience some deep darkness because we miss people that we love, because maybe we're going through a season where we feel alone. This is a really difficult time for widows and widowers. Whatever your circumstance, I want to encourage you that we have a service on, on December 21st that is actually very, very helpful if you're going through a season of grief. It's called The Longest Night. It actually happens on the longest night of the year, every year, so this is the winter solstice. And a lot of churches do this. My church in Colorado did this. It's just a space to come and to worship and to feel whatever you need to feel. You can be sad. You can come with people you love who are also grieving or mourning. You can just come alone. But it's a really beautiful night. 
It's a place where you can kind of bring the fullness of whatever is on your heart and mind before God. And you can sing, and you can pray, and you can be present and hear the scriptures, but you don't have to pretend to be joyful. You don't have to pretend to be exuberant. You can just come. And I think it's one of the most valuable things that we do as a church. So on November 21st, over with our friends at Bethany Green Lake, I would really encourage you to go. I've been able to go a couple of times. My family makes it a priority to go. Uh, please go if you are really feeling like this darkness or this grief that you're feeling is just too strong and you can't make sense of it yet. Go there and encounter the Lord in the midst of that. Now, we've talked about courage. We've talked about emotions. We've talked about two incredible figures from the scriptures. I want to give us an opportunity to kind of wrestle with this in community. And so if you're new, uh, I want to introduce you to this time that we've built into our services from time to time, uh, just called discussion groups. It can be very intimidating to come to a new church and to be invited to have a conversation with people you don't know. I totally understand that. So the rule at the top is, if you're new and you're, and you're participating in one of these groups in a sec, you are more than welcome to say, hey, I'm new and I just want to listen today. That is totally fine. But what we do is, is I'll give you a couple questions, and you'll physically turn your chairs and talk to one another. Uh, we usually encourage people to keep the groups about five or smaller. Uh, and I'll keep an eye on the time, and you'll have about 10 minutes to just talk. And you can talk about whatever you want. You don't have to touch on all the questions. Uh, but it's just a great opportunity to kind of take the learnings uh, from today's sermon and from all of our worship just a bit further. Uh, so the questions I would invite you to consider in your groups is uh, share your name in one Chris- Christmas tradition that you either love or roll your eyes at. Eh, somebody's thinking of something they roll their eyes at. And then the second one is this. What's one thing that stood out to you today from today's message? A next step, a challenge, a conviction, something else. Okay, so you'll have the opportunity to do that now uh, after I pray for us. So please join me in prayer. Father, thankful for the chance to have learned from the example of Ruth and of Mary. Uh, What incredible women you put in Jesus' family. And now you put them in front of us as examples of godly character, of courage, of love, of grace, of sacrifice. Um, help us to learn from them. Help us to learn from each other as we talk. Uh, use these next few moments for your glory. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So I invite you to turn in your chairs, talk to each other, and then I'll gather us back together again in, in about 10 minutes. Thanks.